You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Lovely to see a packed room. I am Natalie Nichols and I'm the Director of Global here at the RSA. And I'm delighted to welcome you to this special long-time event in advance of next week's International Women's Day. We're here to talk about women, work and a deeper look at the culture, values and expectations that shape women's role in society. We're really pleased to be hosting this event today at the RSA because shaping a society that values women's equal participation has been part of our identity for over 260 years. In 1754, the RSA admitted women as full members into the society. And we pioneered advances in education, training and vocational qualifications to improve women's lives, chances and economic prospects ever since. And today we strongly believe that this debate must continue, not just because it's International Women's Day, but within the everyday context of women and their role in society. So it's my really great pleasure to introduce to you our three speakers today. Firstly, we have Dawn Foster. Dawn is a writer on politics, social affairs and economics for The Guardian, the London Review of Books, The Independent, The Times Literary Supplement. She's also a regular political commentator for Sky News, Channel 4 News and for BBC Newsnight. We have Daniele Fiandaka, did I say that right? Okay. Who is the co-founder of Token Man and is our token man today. Um, an initiative to give men a much better understanding of the challenges that women face in the workplace to achieve better empathy when they're in the minority. And we have Sam Smethers, who is the chief executive of the Fawcett Society, the renowned British charity that focuses on advancing women's rights and equality in Britain. So I'd like to start by saying that it's really difficult to narrow down uh, the topics to talk about when we're talking about gender, workplace and women. And there's been a huge amount of noise since last year's International Women's Day about gender equality, but always from a number of different perspectives. At the World Economic Forum earlier this year in Davos, women in business was a key feature um, of the debate and the discussion. In October last year, there was the Women's Equality Party that was launched. Um, we talk about everyday feminism in the workplace. And gender equality is one of the priorities for the Sustainable Development Goals. But while the debate on gender is on the agenda, ooh, while the debate on gender is on the agenda, we haven't quite managed to figure out what the pragmatic approaches to the subject are from within the workplace, and nor some of the deeper reasons why we haven't reached parity, which is why we wanted to have this debate today. So I just want to give you a reminder of what the questions are for this debate. The first question is, is it time for a fundamental rethink of women and work? And is it time to go beyond the statistics and the gender stereotypes to examine the deeper culture, values, norms and expectations that shape our society and the way in which we live and we work together? Sam, I would like to start with you. Um, so the Fawcett Society have worked on these topics for years in Britain. And it'd be great if you could just tell us how bad is workplace inequality in the UK, if that's the case, and are there any battles that have been won? Thank you very much. It's really good to be invited to speak here at the RSA today. Um, I think, first of all, let's start off with the positives, if you like, before we go into what's the problem. One of the positives is there's more women in work now than there's ever been. You know, so female employment is higher than it's ever been. Um, we've got a better educated female workforce. There's, you know, women are leaving very well qualified from school and higher education. More women than men in higher education now. So... 
everything tells us that, actually, that there's some positive signs there. And that has been a picture that's been gradually developing over the last 30, 40 years. That's not a sudden change. Women have been participating in the labour market increasingly over that period of time. But when you actually start to look at the quality of work and the types of work that women are doing, then you start to see it as a bit more of a troubling picture, really. Uh, and it's interesting, the Resolution Foundation have been talking about full employment today and how important full employment is. And it's really nice, in a way, to see the concept of full employment coming back into fashion. But... You know, I would say, and Fawcett would say, we've really got to look at what kind of work people are doing, what, what they're earning, the security of work and so on. And that's, I think, the, the, the sort of debate for the 21st century. So women tend to be uh, going into part-time work, and it's part-time work, low-paid part-time work that, that is growing. Also, increasingly, uh, female entrepreneurs, self-employed women, who are actually doing quite um, low-level work, so childcare, cleaning, that they're being defined as self-employed, but actually they're, they're quite low-paid jobs. And 36% of women who are in those low-paid jobs, according to Fawcett Research, would describe themselves as overqualified for the work that they're doing. So immediately you've got a skills gap in terms of what they're capable of doing and what they're being paid to do. And then the other gap that we see for women working part-time is often they, they would actually like to do more hours. But when they have a child, have a family, they may trade down their hours in order to balance their work and caring roles and then can't get back up because if you request a reduction in hours, it's treated as a permanent change to your contract. And so the right to go back up again will actually help a lot of those women who get a bit trapped in low-pay part-time work over, over the rest of their working lives. And thinking about... Um, Mothers in work, I mean, you know, again, we've seen an increasing number of mums returning to work, but we're not getting the kind of levels that, say, they achieve in Denmark or other parts of, of Europe. Um, and that's because we're not putting enough resource and investment into our childcare infrastructure. We're not supporting dads to share the caring work either. And so the burden of care, the expectation to care and the responsibility to care very much falls on mothers' shoulders still. <coughs> So we've talked about women being concentrated in low-paid part-time work, but they're often also concentrated in certain sections of the economy. So when you look at the gender segregation in our economy, it's really stark. You've got 80% of the caring workforce is female. 87% of the science, technology and engineering and manufacturing workforce is male. And, you know, that just seems a bit crazy, doesn't it, in 2016, that you've got all these amazingly educated young women coming out of school and university, and yet only 21% of, of A-level physics students are women, or young women. So we're not giving our girls the opportunities they should be getting to move into some of the non-traditional roles that girls have, have previously not been doing. And actually, we're not really supporting men to care either, and we're not valuing the caring roles that we have in our society. So they don't become attractive for men to take up because they're low paid and poorly valued and rewarded. So we know that the pay gap, and we hear a lot about that at the moment, the government has been you know, very welcome, it is too, saying they're going to uh, require large companies, employers with 250 staff or more to publish their gender pay gap figures, their headline gender pay gap figures. And we welcome that, we want to see it happen, we want to see the regulations strengthened, there's more that they could do to make that have some teeth and make it really bite but it's really significant as a step towards understanding inequality in the workplace and what's driving it they're also going to be requiring companies to look at where women are within their 
workplaces, so they're at the top or the bottom, and publishing that data as well. So that's, that's another welcome step. And they're going to be requiring companies to publish the pay gap for bonus payments as well as for basic pay. And that's a bit of a win for us because I think that's really significant, especially in sectors like the finance industry where the pay gap is so much bigger than it is nationally. You know, it's 14% for mean full-time work is the gender pay gap. So it means men earn 14% per hour than women do. For part-time work, men earn about a third more than women in part-time work. So the gap is huge for part-time. Um, but in the finance sector, it's, it's a 35% gap. And for black and Asian and minority ethnic women, the pay gap will be bigger still. So you've, you've really got some significant gaps there that we've, we've got in, this, in our economy. And what we would say is that the pay gap is a productivity gap. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a signifier of a waste of talent and skills that we're not using in our economy. It's an absolute tragedy for the individual women who aren't rewarded, but of course it's a waste for the economy that we need to address it. The thing that's changing, I think, and this is where I have a note of optimism, I suppose, is that increasingly employers are seeing it as something that they need to deal with and they need to address, which is why the regulations have been introduced at all. You know, there is at least an opening to thinking, actually, this is something that's relevant for us as an employer because we're wasting our female talent. So I think there has been a shift, at least in some employers, in the way they're thinking about that. Thinking about the causes of, of the pay gap, we've talked about uh, occupational segregation. Well, obviously, the, the unequal impact of caring roles is another huge driver of that. We've got some new data we're publishing next week for International Women's Day, which looks at the caring roles that women and men play and the, the, the way they're perceived when they have children at work. So who becomes more or less committed at work? What's the, the motherhood penalty and the daddy bonus, if you like, in terms of the way women and men are perceived at work? Um, and we've also asked about, well, who takes on the caring role? So is it you or your partner who does all the work around children? So I always get frustrated when I hear people talk about, it's, you know, men are doing more childcare, but, you know, what about the chores? What about the washing up? And I think, well, no, actually, what about the play dates? What about the hospital visits or the doctor's visits, the dentist trips, the, the pick-ups from school, the bath times, all the things that, that wrap around children. And we don't often talk about that. So we're publishing some interesting stats next week which show how women and men are, are, are perceiving it for themselves. But I think the, the other thing that doesn't get talked about enough is discrimination. It's good old-fashioned discrimination, actually. Um, 54,000 women each year experience pregnancy discrimination. So they feel driven out of their jobs or... or, or sacked for being pregnant and that's a stat that's come from a, a biz and an EHRC study so it's not uh, it's a perfectly sort of reliable robust figure but with all the focus on the causes of the pay gap and measuring the pay gap you know the kind of the noise is off that the narrative around that is saying well we haven't got pay discrimination anymore it doesn't happen all we've got is to sort out these other things and you know then it'll all be fine and I just say no 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 of course pay discrimination still happens. Why would we think it doesn't? Just because it's illegal. It's been illegal since 1970. Well, 1975, the regs were implemented. Of course it can still happen. There's lots of things that are illegal that still happen. What we don't do is find out about it because we have no pay transparency in our workplaces. No one talks about pay. And we don't equip individual women to have the information so that they can bring a case and bring a challenge. And we also now have employment tribunal fees of £1,200 in order to bring a claim. And we've seen 80% reduction in discrimination cases as a result of those fees, like a cliff edge as soon as they came in. So 
I am not persuaded at all that we've seen the end of pay discrimination. All I know is we don't know enough about it and we don't find out about it. And individual women are denied justice in challenging it. Things coming down the track towards us, changing labour market. The, the biggest thing on the horizon for us, I think, as a society is the ageing population and caring. And we really are not at all equipped to respond to it, to support the caring role that, that, that women and men need to play. We calculate, you know, we, we say that 27% of the female population are economically inactive. You know, it's like a sort of black hole they disappear into. The majority of those people will be very, very important, making important contributions to their family, to their society, to the economy in terms of caring for somebody else. Without question, that's what a lot of those people will be doing, but we don't count it and we don't value it. So I would like to see a different measure if you like, Who's, who are the caring, who, who are the active carers and who are the not active carers? Let's start to count and value something which actually as a society we're going to need far more of as we go forward. And if we don't, you know, I really dread to think what will happen to both to our older population who really need the care, but also to older women, women in their 50s often, who are the ones expected to do the caring. So where, you know, are they going to be picking up the slack? Are they going to be under even more pressure to do both working longer and caring more? Great, thank you very much, Sam. I think that's a great way to set the scene. Um, Daniele, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about Token Man, kind of thing, shifting tact, really, to talk about something that's actually quite a very kind of tangible and practical um, that you've been pushing forward. So uh, Token Man is about creating this kind of cultural shift within the workplace, um, helping men to be able to contribute in a tangible way towards addressing gender inequality. Can you just tell us a little bit about what the initiative is and what you've found so far? I work in advertising, and for those that know advertising, advertising is a massive issue when it comes to creative directors. I mean, there's a famous stat that 3% of creative directors are female. 3%. I mean, that's a, that's a real... I think in the UK it's gone, some, it's gone up to something like 7%. But I run a, a collective of 300 creative directors. So for me, it's been, it's been an issue. We've been running it for 11 years. It's been an issue for us in terms of diversity and you know, we, we, we've just done something called the Great British Diversity Experiment. And I'm not, uh, diversity leads to creativity. You know, f- so, so it's a fundamental issue for the industry. Um, and so we've spent quite a lot of time trying to recruit women. And, and I, I worked with a friend of mine called Laura Jordan-Bamback. She runs the brilliant network called She Says. And we did a dinner. And I turned up to this dinner. I didn't even think about it. We hosted this dinner. And it was to recruit more women. Uh, and I turned up. And there were 13 women and me. I didn't think about it. It was one of the worst dinners I've ever had. I hated it. Um, and all of a sudden, I understood for the first time in my working life what it meant to be a woman in the minority. Okay? And it didn't matter what anyone had ever told me before, I experienced it. And it meant I lost my voice. You know, if I'm in a room full of men, I'm, I'm definitely one of the loudest. Um, but all of a sudden, I saw a change in behaviour in myself in terms of confidence. I saw a change in behaviour in Laura in the way that she actually treated me. Um, I think she did something she would never usually do. She's a very good friend. Uh, And there were things, that simple things like the ability to have conversations around you. And all of a sudden I found conversations were happening that I had no affinity to. So... And I, can't, and I came out of that, and it, it was enlightening. It was um, the first time I'd ever felt something like that. And it did change some of my behaviours. So simple things like Tuesday morning, you know, we're men. We're 
quite a lot of support, support football. The first thing we go into management meeting, we talk about the football. Straight away, I'm cutting out. I realised for the first time ever that I was cutting out the women in, who, in that particular case, had no interest in football. And when they're a minority, that makes it very hard. So I told this story to quite a few people, and we, st- we started talking about it. We, I, didn't really, I didn't mean to do anything with it at all. And then I uh, spoke at a, a very intimate breakfast um, with a company called Hyper Island. Uh, it was a small breakfast. It was, it was a small room like this. Uh, it was the first time I'd been invited. And then someone came up from the back. Uh, this was in Sweden. Uh, I don't know how many... You know, so this is a, it was a time when this was a major... Gender diversity was a major issue in Sweden, which I didn't know about the elections. And someone, attacked, and someone really aggressively attacked what Creative Social were doing because of the amount of male faces. And do you know what? I'm not proud of the way I reacted. I got defensive... Uh, I didn't give a good answer. I didn't talk about all the positive things we were doing. I just gave, I gave, a, ba- I gave a bad answer. And for, for a lot of women in the room, that was fine because they came up and spoke to me. But for one woman, she didn't like you. And do you know what? I, just, I got back and I was so angry because I just felt that finger-pointing wasn't the way to actually create change. You know, I was there doing stuff in the background. And I said, there, must, there has to be a better way. And so I spoke to Emma, who was a creative director at chair with me and we decided to launch Token Man. So Token Man really is about creating an environment where men can talk about diversity in a way where they're not going to be challenged so they can be educated. You know, we don't know the answers. Uh, I, trust me, I've said this, this is the first panel I'm doing. I'm nervous sitting on a panel talking about these issues. Um, we, don't, we don't know the answers, but the only way to actually educate people and to create change is through discussion and through positive discussions, and that's what we're doing with Token Man. So we have, we tried to do dinners, uh, we tried to recreate it, but that was too hard, and we realised we didn't have permission or we didn't have a voice. So what we've been doing is we've been doing interviews. We've been getting senior female execs to interview senior male execs about diversity. So we've done about 12 interviews so far. We've interviewed, so the latest interview will come out either tomorrow or next week is with the CEO of JWT. We've done Sir Martin Soro at WPP. We've done um, EJ who runs Wolf Olins. We've done, it tends to be CEOs who are running agencies. And the nice thing for us, the nice thing for us in terms of learning is firstly, there are some enlightened men out there. Yeah, there are men that, yeah, who, are do, who are doing really good who are doing some really good initiatives, but even they accept there's more they need to be doing. I mean, a good example is read the interview with Darren Rubens. Darren Rubens doing some fantastic work, especially around parents and about bringing people back into the workplace. And PhD as an organisation has seen some huge changes in terms of what they're doing. What we've also seen, uh, which has been extremely encouraging, is we're starting to get anecdotal evidence that we're having immediate change. So... Of those 12 interviews, I know one interview has led to two women being promoted to board within one month. Because they've looked at it and they go, do you know what, we haven't done this because we are challenged. The second example is I know two women have been given pay increases because they looked at the pay gap. We asked them a question about pay gap. The CEOs looked at it and said, OK, I'm going to go and look at this properly. They've looked at it properly and within one week, two women got pay increases. So for me, I think the, the real, what we are trying to do is trying to get more and more, and well done for all the men in the audience. Uh, we're trying to get more men into the discussion because I was mentioning it before, but Chloe, I, I do go to, uh, I, I kind of forced to go to more of these things myself because I'm not in, I, I'm, the last thing I am is enlightened. Um, 
And firstly, it's a shame to be in the audience, and I usually am the token man. Uh, we didn't realise what a genius name it was, but you end up being you end up being the token man. But Chloe, who runs something called the Gender Blog, she said something that I thought was really interesting, which is no minority is actually being able to make change without the support of the majority. And so for me, this is an issue that needs men and women working together to actually solve. Great. Thank you. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions about that afterwards. Um, Dawn, and then finally to you. Um, your new book builds on the leaning, lean out debate. Um, I definitely suggest you read it if you, hadn't, if you haven't come across it yet. Um, so you, and you quite strongly critique the idea of putting the responsibility on the individual, um, saying that it replaces the demand for structural and systemic change, and therefore addressing some of the systemic inequalities that we face in society. Um, when we talk about the system, it's always something that people feel very removed from um, and very disempowered to tackle. So I suppose my question to you is, if the system is making life difficult for women, how can we break through the challenges the system is presenting us from within the workplace? Um, I suppose I, kind of, I started writing um, Lean Out after uh, a colleague came home and she worked in technology and she said that she was increasingly sick of the fact that even though she was a manager, she managed a mostly male team and felt constantly undermined in the workplace. And she felt there was this kind of culture that no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't really change because um, her colleagues who were kind of one, one rung on the kind of uh, ladder were so resistant to any kind of cultural change that she was constantly, you know, made to feel kind of hysterical and emotional and all, every kind of, you know, uh, stereotypical female uh, um, kind of like phrase you can think of. So when she, when she decided, without asking anybody, to start a kind of women's group to talk amongst female managers about what they were experiencing, how they could change the culture and what the problems were, um, a male manager for a high, much, much, much higher up in the company found out and in, invited himself along without asking, and, um, and said, oh, I thought what would be really, really good is if you all uh, went away and read this Sheryl Sandberg book. I think it would be really, really helpful, and it will probably save you a lot of time with this little group you've got. Um, and so she came home, started reading it, got bored, gave it to me, and I, I mean, I've, I, I'm mostly a kind of social affairs and political journalist, so I spent a lot of time travelling around the country, looking at cuts and looking at poverty, looking at um, most marginalised people, so talking to people who are disabled, people who are carers, asylum seekers, um, women who've experienced domestic violence. And I just became increasingly infuriated at the idea that change comes solely from within when most of the women I spoke to um, had, had very deliberately had all of their power taken away from them. And a lot of that was down to um, just straight economics. I mean, Fawcett have been at the forefront of this. I mean, you did that great report that showed that when you look at the cuts that happened between 2010 and uh, you know, 2015, 80% of them fell on women. Um, that's absolutely huge. So we've had uh, employment tribunal fees introduced so women can't take their employers to court um, if, if, uh, you know, um, for sexual harassment or you know, pay discrepancies unless they pay. Um, we've had the withdrawal of legal aid, so you know, dozens and dozens of women, hundreds of women um, have been denied justice. At the same time, we've had bedroom tax, we've had benefit cuts, we've had cut upon cut upon cut, which, because women are paid less, because women care more, falls on women over and over again. Um, 
So I found it quite galling. I couldn't imagine sp speaking to a woman who was affected by the bedroom tax, cared for her disabled child, and couldn't work because she was saving the state money by caring for this child herself. And I couldn't imagine saying to her, have you considered kind of leaning in a bit more? <laughs> um, so, um, and so I... I felt, I, I felt that this actually spoke to a kind of a movement that I'd seen in feminism myself since um, uh, I, I think I first kind of came across the idea that feminism was relevant to me when I went to university. I remember when I was in sixth form in a very kind of working class area in South Wales, one of my friends was reading a book about feminism. Every single boy in, in the sixth form common room took, you know, took the absolute mick out of her. Um, every single stereotype for about, you know, Second wave feminists that unreconstructed, like Neanderthal, like children, what you know, could come up with was thrown at her, and I just assumed, oh, that's you know, it, it, it must be weird. It's nothing to do with me. And then I went to university and was lucky enough to have a lot of lecturers who introduced a lot of feminism and theory into their courses, and realised that actually it's as much feminism is as much about class as it is about um, as about gender. I mean. I think part of the reason why Sheryl Sandberg is able to get to the top is because she comes from a relatively affluent background. Her, part, you know, her, um, her previous partner was very, very wealthy, and, and, and she's very wealthy. She is able to pay for people to care for her children at no huge detriment to her. Um, and so the kind of things that she suggests are, are not applicable to most people because most people can't go to their employer and say, I would like a pay rise. Because if you look at zero-hours contracts, 75% of the people on zero-hours contracts are women. If those women um, go to uh, their employer at Sports Direct or um, various other places and say, I'd actually quite like a pay rise and more hours, those women know that they're in such a precarious position that all that will happen is they, is they, they never get work again. Um, so... But I'd seen this trend moving more and more away from viewing feminism as a kind of movement that, that involved um, you know, making a rising tide that lifted everybody um, and focusing more on individuals and glass ceilings and less on women's economic condition after recession and sticky floors, which force it very good on. I think I, I, if you look at what's happened after the recession... Um, so many women have uh, found, that, found that the progress they previously felt has gone backwards. So, I mean, th there's been a huge rise in self-employment, which is seen as kind of economic freedom. But for most of the women I, I speak to who are self-employed, because they're self-employed, it means that their opportunity to have maternity leave that will actually sustain them is almost zero. Um, I spoke to uh, a woman who was self-employed the other day. Her partner is also self-employed, and she worked. And she uh, recently found out she's pregnant. And she worked out that if she if she took maternity leave, she would uh, be given six hundred pound a month. And she lives in London and has a has a flat. Her partner earns less than she does, um, and she realised that she would just have to have a baby and after two weeks go straight back to work. Um, and she couldn't see how this was remotely feasible, and she was relatively affluent compared to much, much, you know, much, much poorer women. Um, so I feel as though we have to think more about how little we can often do within a structure and think more about um, kind of female solidarity across class, across, across race, across all types of economic barriers. And... Um, 
do what Fawcett do, what a lot of people do, what lots of grassroots um, groups do, and never ever stop talking about exactly how disadvantaged women are, exact, uh, about how, how, how small kind of government changes in bills that, 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 that they imply mean very little have a huge day-to-day impact on thousands and thousands of women. Um, so I think we do need to kind of lean out of the idea that we can get to the top by incorporating our, um, ourselves into, into this culture and by copying um, kind of male, male characteristics and, and male work culture and instead um, talk more about what we can do to make workplaces more female-friendly but also how the economy can incorporate women more. And that is a great segue into my next question. Thank you very much. Um, so I was reading this morning that a social enterprise in Bristol has brought in a period policy. I don't know if anyone else picked this up this morning, right? Obviously a few of you did. Um, so they basically brought in a policy that said when women are on their period or coming up to their period, they can take time off because apparently in the three days following a woman's period, she's a pr- three times more productive. I have no idea. <laughs> really interesting. Um, so I suppose my question is, and this, is, this goes back to exactly what you were just saying, Dawn, for all three of you. What are the opportunities for the workplace to challenge some of society's expectations? Because I'm not saying that it isn't about the system and it isn't about politics, because it absolutely is. But I think for the everyday person, either sitting in this room or listening to this or in their workplace, that feels relatively far removed from them. Um, so what are the opportunities, a bit like what the Bristol Social Enterprise are doing, for individuals within organisations to challenge society's expectations. And listening to you, it can either be for, about collective action, it could be about raising awareness and bringing men on board, or it could be about valuing skills and sectors that we don't currently value because we know that they're going to be important in the future. Just love to get some of your one-minute thoughts on that before we open up to the audience. <coughs> yeah, Sam, please. Um, just on the, on the um, period leave issue. I mean, we, we were on record yesterday, I, I gave a, a quick interview on it, and we welcomed it, saying, well, let's, you know, let's start talking about some of these things. We're breaking some of these taboos. These are issues that women have been dealing with for years. But we're not, you know, you can deal with it within the context of a, a sensible sickness policy. It doesn't actually have to mean an additional category of leave. But what we welcome is the fact that it's, it's being aired. And just before I came here, I was at a roundtable talking about the menopause and the significance of the menopause. And again, it's one of those issues, totally taboo, nobody talks about it. But actually, you know, it affects half the population. And about three million women are living with the menopause right now in the workplace and struggling with it. So it's, it's actually really significant stuff and it impacts on their ability to stay in work and, do, and perform well and feel good about their performance at work. So we, we have to start cracking some of these sorts of taboos. The stuff we're publishing next week about sharing care, you know... How do employers treat dads at work? How do they see, you know, how do they perceive their commitment to work, and how do they support and enable their caring role with their children? And you know, you polarise. What we do in our society, we polarise women and men. So when they, women have uh, men have children, the woman is perceived as less committed to her job significantly, you know, overwhelmingly, and the man is perceived as becoming more committed to his job. So immediately, the motherhood penalty and the daddy bonus kicks in. And he's then saying, oh, now he's, he's got a family to support, you know. So he'll work harder. And actually, well, she's, she'll, of course, she won't, really, she won't be that interested in her job anymore. Maybe she'd rather just leave and stay at home with the kids. And we just feed these stereotypes all the time. So supporting dads to care and enabling dads to care and making you know, flexibility the norm at work, you know, we're saying we should have flexibility first. A job should be presumed to be a flexible working job when it's advertised unless there is a good business case for it not to be. 
We shouldn't have to make it a concession to somebody. It should be a way of working. And if we start from a different place and change the default assumptions we're making, we'll start to drive change. Great, thank you. Danielle, what do you think? So I'm not sure whether anyone's heard, but there's a movement called culture hacking, which is all about understanding how you can change culture by making lots of small changes. Uh, and that's, I've been doing quite a lot of work on that. We're doing a conference with that, where that's the theme. But I think what we need to see is more and more people doing little initiatives that make a difference. And even if they get it wrong, at least learning from those initiatives. So culture hacking comes from the startup community. If you want to read about it, the most famous case is Netflix in terms of what they've done in corporate responsibility. Um, I'm not sure the American companies are the best in terms of uh, paternity leave. Um, but... Um, I think for me, it's, it's finding small things that make a big difference. And Michael, who's the, uh, who's the head of marketing at The Economist, he talked about um, they now only book meetings at The Economist between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Because that, by definition, actually allows it its much more supportive environment for parents. Uh, he, he, he will talk about the fact that you shouldn't never go after a meeting to the pub. Because what happens is invariably, and this is someone that built agencies around spending a lot of time in pubs, um, you, know, you, you start to realise it's not conducive for parents because what, in, what inevitably happens is the meeting continues to the pub and so parents who need to go home are then excluded from that meeting and therefore that makes a bit difference. And so what we're doing at the moment is we're collecting a lot of, as much as we can, uh, culture hacking uh, examples. So really starting, and I'm working with businesses now uh, to actually look at their cultures to work out how they can hack things. So it starts becoming more the responsibility of individuals who can actually make a difference as opposed to senior management. So the minute you start focusing on big changes, you have to go through bureaucracy and you need to go up senior. What we're saying is, listen, you as an individual, you can make changes to your day-to-day. And as more people see those changes making a difference, that's where we're going to get, we'll get laddering up big changes. That's great. I love that. Thank you. So what do you think? Yeah, I like the idea of small changes in the workplace. Like, I mean, as Sam said, I think it should be part of a sensible sickness policy. But I think bringing these things out and saying, like, perhaps we could have some period leave. <coughs> perhaps if colleagues are observing Ramadan, they could have some time off. Maybe we could have, you know, menopause leave. I think it's a really, really good idea. What I'd really, ideally, in a utopian Britain, like to see is flexible working taken really, really seriously. So instead of flexible working just meaning you can pop off an hour early to pick up your kids um, if you want, what I'd like to see is people accepting that Britain have a real productivity problem. So even when people are in work, they're often not as productive as their European counterparts. And if we have a certain amount of um, unemployment, a certain amount of underemployment, and some people who... um, like me, for instance, work 70 hours a week when they could easily work half that. Why not reduce people at people's hours? Why, why not have more people doing three days a week um, when you know they'll be as productive in those three days as they would in five? Employ more people and just let more people have career breaks, not just maternity leave, um, but just maybe six months to go off and write a novel if they wanted. They'll come back to the workplace a lot happier. And if more men are taking these breaks as well, either to, you know, it, it might be that your child is eight years old, you don't feel you've spent a lot of time with them and you want to do more, why not take that off in the middle? I think if we make the workplace more flexible so that, we're, so that we don't have this kind of all-or-nothing attitude where men work 40 hours a week and women do part-time work, which is, which is seen as lesser, while also caring, I think if we make everything a bit more flexible, 
and move away from everybody working full-time, then actually we might get to the point where everybody is a bit more accepting of things and men may take on more childcare, women may be able to get ahead more at their job, etc. So. so some very creative ideas about fundamentally rethinking the workplace. Brilliant. Start with the RSA. Um, I'd like to open up to the audience. So we have a question down here, please. I feel like I'm in a sense of deja vu. I've been here four times before. I'd just like to take one example and go across to the city. Um, last year, the Lord Mayor of London, Fiona Wolfe, back in 2009, put out a wonderful document to the solicitors um, group, whatever they were called, on the basis of flexible working, sending work home, giving people time off in maternity, keeping them involved and supporting them coming back. That was a long time ago. As, as Lord Mayor of London, she drove three diversity buses. I don't know how many people in here have either heard of her or have seen the buses, big red buses, driving diversity, series of breakfast meetings where she had the top CEOs and she was talking about diversity. I think the taboo at the moment is about women on boards. I think the taboo is about women of influence in Parliament. And I'm thinking in particular of the work that Margaret Hodge has been doing. She may be of a certain age, which we don't talk about, but she's been doing some amazing work. So many of the baronesses of a certain age. All these people have been through all this stuff and it needs to be in the legislation. I just want to say one other thing. The Australian Broadcasting Commission has 50% women right the way through up to the top and the leader of one of the Australian major banks who's now resigned because she hit her target of 43% right through the company. This country is so far behind so many other countries and there is not a will. It's to do with the history of the white male stale, as they call it. The work that's going on at this very minute across in the O2 in terms of STEM and things like that is fantastic because it is asserting that women are clever in the science subjects. Jocelyn Belbedell, Maggie Adair and Pocock. We need to celebrate our top women, put them out there as role models for girls. I'm sorry that those taboos are... Neither of them are of interest to me when we have this gross injustice. Margaret Hodge says equality is what drives her, and equality is what it's about. And it's not just for women, it's equality for everybody. Um, we have two questions over in the corner there. I absolutely don't know what the answer is to the question that I'm going to raise here, and I, I kind of don't know whether anybody in the room does. But um, thinking about what Dawn was saying about, um, and indeed Sam, about ordinary women doing jobs in the caring sector. Um, I've had two female friends recently resign from being supervisors in the care sector because they found the pressure of making rotors round their female, mostly female colleagues and their wish for flexibility mind-bendingly impossible. So as customers of care, the person being cared for or the... Um, family of the person being cared for wants a reliable person who's going to turn up at the time that's specified four times a day often and meanwhile the carers and indeed anybody in the workplace who's got responsibilities wants flexibility to be able to have time off at short notice and I don't know how to square this but at the level of those sort of jobs in the workforce trying to get complete flexibility when that means having time off at short notice when everything is driven by the concept of the rotor and the appointment and very low levels of cover so that this one person is a pinch point of dependency in the system is a really big problem. As somebody who's run an IT help desk, I never knew how to sort it out with my female staff mostly, although male staff sometimes. 
And, and I don't know what the answer is, but these are the kind of real problems in everyday life with low-level jobs. How, how do you square it all? Thank you. I work in a very female-dominated um, sector, the charity sector, and um, we still have um, a predominantly male leadership in our organisation and across the board. I think that would be true across the It's probably better than some other sectors. Um, there's still the perception that myself and some of my female colleagues feel um, that we are seen as perhaps the secondary income, so therefore that we can be paid less, that we may be less committed because we may go off on maternity leave at any moment. And it's very difficult to raise those issues as a woman without giving the perception that I'm about to leave and, and have four children um, and therefore I'm less committed. So very practically, probably a question for Dawn, um, how do you deal with that in the please okay great um sam would you like to take the slightly impossible question um about squaring the realities of low level low level skilled work um with the demand for flexibility i think the first thing to say is that the the care sector is under huge pressure hugely underfunded so you've got a a double whammy going on you've got extra pressure just being driven by the underfunding of, of care over and above the challenge of rotors and, and juggling different needs of different employees and so on. So I think that's, that's one issue, because if you had a bit more slack in the system, you'd have more flexibility and you'd probably be able to accommodate the request more easily. But I think the point about flexibility is there's lots of different ways to have flexibility, whether it's time, location. It doesn't, you know, you, you, it's not just one size fits all of flexibility. And what's one solution for one person might be somebody else's, it might not be somebody else's solution. So it's always a trade-off, it's always a balancing act. And the responsibility in the employee in the negotiation is to say, well, actually, this is how I think we could still do the work, do the job, run the business. And so it's it's a right to request for a reason because it can't be a right to have because you've still got to function as as a business, as an organisation. But what you need is a culture that assumes that flexibility is the best way to operate so that you get the best out of people. And it's going to be a way of working in the organisation. This is how we do it. So you design your way of working rather than designing it as a concession to an individual. And I think that's that way round. The employer is still very much in control, but you you, you create a flexible culture from day one. But I'm not saying it's, I've got all the solutions to your rotor question, personally. <laughs> can I just come back on the other Yeah, one? yeah, of course you can. I mean, you know, we've, we've called for quotas for women at the top on boards. Absolutely, we agree with targets. The CPI is talking for targets of women in exec positions, completely support them on that. We also say all women shortlist, absolutely the most effective mechanism for getting women into Parliament. It's been proven all over the world, but individual parties are making those decisions about whether it suits them but ultimately we know what the solutions are it's just getting people to take them up um i've actually come across this problem over and over again because uh, obviously i'm in my late 20s i left university so about a quarter of my friends work in the charity sector and they find time and time again that because the charity sector is so female dominated that they're told over and over again that that what they're doing is good and so they should be pleased to be rewarded for it at all, rather than complaining <laughs> about, about how much they are rewarded. And you see this a lot in like, quite female-dominated jobs. Like if you speak to care workers, again, care workers are paid not very much at all um, because it's assumed that they're doing it um, as a kind of ph- philanthropic act rather than an economic act. Um, I can't think of a huge solution other than just constantly try and build like a kind of workplace solidarity so that you all you're all aware of the situation you're in but i find it really interesting with the charity sector and most of these sectors that 
this this never works when you look when you look at CEO pay. So um, I quite often write about charities, and you look and you look at their chief executives, and the chief executives will often have had like a twelve percent pay rise, been parachuted in from somewhere that isn't even in the charity sector, um, and will then be telling their 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 helpline staff, their fundraisers, their campaigners that there isn't any money there, and all the money has to go to you know the people you're trying to help, except the money for their salary, um, but. I think maybe push for more transparency in the in, in, in chief executive pay. That's often a bit more transparent in, in charities than, than in many others. Um, and just point out over and over again that your work is the bread and butter of the charity. You're given money because you are good at fund, fundraising, because you're good at campaigning, because you're good at, at, at getting the issue across. You're not given money because somebody likes the look of your CEO. So, Great, thank you. Um, questions? Hi, thank you. Uh, my question's for Daniela and uh, the other two. Feel free to weigh in. Uh, I run a leadership training and development consultancy, very broad, but with a strong focus on gender equality. And I 100% agree with you that men need to get involved and the dialogue is really not personally relevant to them. There are some enlightened men, as you say, that have jumped on the cause for women, but not all of them. Uh, so we've... We've come up with, you know, how can we start getting men involved and how can we make it about a dialogue and less about the number of women and men or the spread, but more about what's valued in the culture um, and it's largely masculine traits um, rather than feminine traits. Uh, and so I guess my question for you is, I'm told often that this is far too progressive. So you've started with talking to CEOs uh, and you've got some, you know, good ones on board that get it. What's next? How do we get the rest of the men involved? Thank you. Great question. Thank you. Most of the time we share an analysis of what's wrong, but the question is, how do we make changes? I mean, one of the ways in which we're different from a lot of Europe is that we don't actually have childcare provision. We don't have provision. We have uh, the ability to try and ask someone to look after your child and become a childminder, but mostly there is... No pro public provision for naught to fives. It's all in the private sector. Um, it's too expensive. It's not where people need it, and it doesn't fit their needs. And it doesn't fit the children's needs. It's got to be good both for the parents and for the children for it to have any effect at all on the flexibility issue that we're talking about. And it would be much more easy for people to be flexible themselves if there were some supporting structures around, both for older people, the, when you're looking after your aging parents, as well as when you're looking after your young children. So it's kind of, what measures can you see that should be put in place? All the ones that you've talked about, I think, are absolutely essential, but haven't happened, like transparency. Harriet Harman tried to make it um, one of the... Um, um, aspect of legislation was overturned in 2010. Okay, lovely, thank you. And then uh, Matthew, just down here. Um, I think my question must be for Sam because you mentioned quotas and women only shortlists. Um, in Britain, it's never been lawful to have positive discrimination and quotas. And in fact, the Labour Party tried women only shortlists and it was unlawful. Um, do you think that the American approach using positive discrimination and quotas has actually been more successful than the British approach? Lovely, thank you. Danielle, if we can start with you. What's next? That, that, that's, 
That's a uh, that's a brilliant question. We, uh, the truth is, we all volunteer. So we all, you know, uh, Emma and Emma and Georgia have got full time jobs. They're creative directors. I'm a consultant. Um, you know, we we we've got a short amount of time to do things. I think for, for us, in terms of, you know, we are seeing it, our, our interviews are getting amazing traction so for those that know the advertising industry the drums a magazine that we are getting on average one of our interviews is getting 750 shares which is enormous for the drum so we are getting traction in terms of people who are reading it i think in terms of next what we want to be doing is you know we are creatives with a small c you know i think creativity is the future of our industry and a lot of industries we want to find creative ways to start getting this message out here, more inclusive, and I think we'll probably focus around the hacks. So the more people we can inspire to actually start thinking about making those small changes is where I think will make a big difference. I also w- I would not underestimate the... the I would under, not underestimate the, the, the number of men that just aren't thinking about this issue. Yeah, and, and it, it, the, every single man that we get thinking about this issue... Is, is going to make a difference because unconscious bias is enormous. It really is enormous. I mean, I've done my unconscious bias, and believe it or not, my unconscious bias is very different than it would have been two years ago. My unconscious bias actually is leaning towards women, but that's, that's actually no surprise. If I look at my idea of the unconscious bias for disability, I know I've got a negative view, and I know why that is. That's education. Yeah, it's totally education. It's totally exposure. You know, and what we need to be doing is understanding those things exist and then we can start changing and finding ways to change. So I think it's the more, the more men we can get in front of um, and to a certain extent the more things like this hopefully will make a difference. Lovely. Thank you very much. And as a slight anecdote, um, I'm obviously pregnant um, and my husband works for a bank which will remain unnamed. And uh, I have a colleague at the RSA who's taking four months paternity leave, and it wasn't until I told my husband that he was taking paternity leave that my husband thought, oh, maybe I could do the same. It didn't even occur to him. Um, so I very much support the idea that we, do, we need to raise awareness and provide examples of where change can happen, um, particularly when there is a law of shared paternity, so the bank can't even say no, which is great. Um, Dawn, the question on what, what are the indicators that we might need? We've talked to a num- about a number of different kind of measures that we could look at to make sure that there is systemic change. But if there were, you know, maybe two or three, what, what do you th- which ones do you think might be the ones that would start to change our behaviour? I think childcare is like the big, big, big issue. That's, I mean, if, if I, if I, you know, I, th- I think a colleague worked it out recently and said that if you're earning under £18,000, it's not worth your while to go back to work because almost all that money gets sucked back into childcare. And I feel like the government's kind of response to this is to give you a voucher and a tax rebate here and there, and it just looks so complicated, you know, I can barely fathom it. Surely it's much easier to accept that care is something that we as a society should care about, and so why not provide it in the same way we provide the NHS? Why not say that all children should be looked after while their parents are in work? Why not accept that parents being economically stable and being able to work is good? And why not accept that we shouldn't be in a position where women have to care for their, care for, you know, care for their children or have, them, or have their, 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 you know, their mother care for their children and then in turn care for their own parents later and constantly be stuck in the cycle of like trying to, trying to juggle work but also care responsibilities. So I think that's a big thing. Um, I also think that we, you know, I, I think Sam mentioned, you know, quite rightly that we look at 
women in employment, but as Sam said, like what we need to look at what sort of employment women are in. Um, there are so many women working part time who'd like to be, uh, you know, do, working more hours. So many women on zero hours contracts. So many women on um, unstable contracts that are renewed every now and then. And actually looking at the type of work women are doing, how much they're paid per hour, and what their rights are, etc. <coughs> so. right. Thank you very much. And then Sam, your thoughts on positive discrimination versus the system that we have in the UK? Uh, well, firstly, just on, on that, um, the All Women's Shortlists uh, exemption to the Sex Discrimination Act was legislated for in 2002, and there's been the, the sunset clause for it was extended in 2015, so it is legal. The Labour Party uses all women's shortlists perfectly legally and any political party can do the same. Um, and we've done that because we recognise that that is a, a useful mechanism to achieve an outcome. And I would say the same for any positive discrimination measure. What is the outcome you're trying to achieve? Using a mechanism like quotas with a sunset clause, so you, you do it for a period of time, you review, you see do you still need to have it in place, you might extend it. It's just a tool. You know, I don't really see why we should be afraid of it. If you recognise, as you've already said... Unconscious bias is incredibly strong and powerful. It, it drives a lot of the decisions that we make in, in our society in the way that powerful people exercise power and control over others. It tends to be men exercising that power and control over women. Then what are you going to do about it? How can you leapfrog that? So that's what, that's what the role of those mechanisms are. So we're, we're all for it. Um, on childcare, oh, my, my, you know, I've, got four, <laughs> I've got four kids. Right? I've lived childcare, backwards, forwards, upside down. I've done it. I've, every possible source of childcare I have used. Um, what we've done in this country is do it back to front. We've, we've gone demand side, we haven't invested in the supply side. So we haven't got a national childcare infrastructure. We have fragmented, fragile individual providers existing at the margins and relying on parents paying through the nose for the services that they get and, you know, without getting poor quality, so the kids aren't getting a good service, the parents aren't getting a good service, the economy's not getting a good service, so everybody's losing because childcare is just broken. So what we need to do is a fundamental restructure of our childcare infrastructure. You know, Germany, they stand up and talk about investing in a childcare infrastructure. I was at an IPPR event that Giselle Corey's here, you know, she ran it. That's what they talked about. We don't invest in our childcare infrastructure. We give parents a few more hours for three and four-year-olds. Well, my kids were three and four once, but they're not anymore. You know, it doesn't work. So we have to treat it as a service that we all need. And we need to run a service that's good for children. Absolutely, I'm all for quality. But we've got to recognise the economic value of it. And who benefits? Parents, the state and employers benefit. We need a triangular solution like the apprenticeship levy. Well, you know, if we get childcare working right, everybody can benefit from it. So I think it's, it's a massive issue and we've really got to tackle it and see it as an investment model. And the Infrastructure Commission should be looking at childcare, not roads and rail. There you go. Can I pick up on the positive discrimination? So the one you can. I've obviously been through a learning in my last two years, and the one thing I thought I'd never say is I believe in positive discrimination. I believe in positive discrimination. And the reason being is the one answer I, w I think we all have been... Well, certainly I was guilty, but most men are guilty of giving is saying... I, the key thing is that we, we hire the best person for the job. Where people have got it wrong and where I've got it wrong in the past, as a leader you realise that actually... If you're creating a brilliant business, it's a team of individuals. Okay? And so when you're hiring, you need to really start looking about hiring in teams. 
So what is the best role that will make your team function the best? And we, we, we see evidence both from a gender diversity and a diversity level coming out of McKinsey saying that businesses that are more diverse and mixed perform better than businesses that aren't. So therefore, if I've got a team that isn't diverse, I am a leader, I am failing that team. So when I'm looking to hire into that role in a, in, and I've got a gap, then in that particular case, it's going to make more sense to bring in someone as a woman or, or brings another mix into that diversity. And the minute you start looking as groups, I think it completely changes the way that you actually look at how you hire. Sadly, we have run out of time. I knew that when we were going to talk about this topic and we were going to bring up you know, the title of Women in Work, that it would move towards women in economics um, and some of the social structures that support or hinder a much more equal society. This is only the debate, well, it's not, it's not only the beginning, because it has been going on for a long time, but it's certainly the beginning of a new wave of the RSA talking about this. Next month, we have an economist called Irish Bonnet, who's from the US, and she'll be coming and talking about some of her work in economics with a gender focus. So if you haven't signed up for that, please do. We, also, we are also running a series of blogs on gender from a gender perspective, and we welcome guest blogs from either fellows or from other people, so please also do get in touch. This is certainly not the end of the discussion, and we thank you so much for attending. Um, I'm hopeful that by the time my child is my age, we're going to be in a very different situation, um, a mixture between raising awareness and fundamentally rethinking the way that our economy works and realising that we are actors in that economy is going to be key to doing so. So thank you very much for coming. And I'd like to thank our key speakers, Sam, Daniele and Dawn. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.